There's a question that developers often raise when we're excited about a new technology. I've heard variants of this question for just about every new technology that's starting to seem production ready. And it's very simple. How do I persuade my boss to let me use this? You can put it more formally if you like. You can express it as, how do I explain the value of this technology to the business? Same question. It's a case we often want to make as devs. I can tell it's useful, I can tell it's cool, but more than cool, it's valuable. But how do I transmit that to the CEO, to my business manager, to the other departments? How do you pin it down when you're at heart a technical person? So I've been on the lookout for a while for a guest who can help us with that, who kind of sits at the intersection of software development, dare I say it, dare I use the word, marketing, that talking about software to non-software people world, someone technical that can speak to a CEO and explain what's in it for them. And I think I may have found the perfect guest in the form of Greg DiMichelli. Greg has an interesting career path. He started out as a software engineer, and he took a route that eventually led him through as director of product management for EC2 and then GCP, and then eventually ended up in our world of event streaming in a job that actually gets the word product, technical, and marketing into just one job title. I met him uh, late last year at the current conference we held in Austin, Um, We hung out in the bar afterwards, and I really enjoyed hearing his thoughts about the value of event streaming and where he thinks our industry is going and what's stopping us from getting there faster. And I thought, this is the man we need to get on the record. This is a perspective we need to understand if we're going to understand what our technology means to the wider business. Before we begin, as ever, this podcast is brought to you by Confluent Developer. More about that at the end. But for now, I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Streaming Audio. Let's get into it. I'm joined today by Greg Demichelli. Greg, how are you over there? I'm doing great, Chris. Great to be with you. Good to have you. You are, you're in a lauded, vaulted hall for streaming audio. <laughs> we we don't normally invite people in marketing on streaming audio. We go a bit, bit more technical. Uh, yeah, You're, I can understand that. You are officially the vice president of product and marketing, pro- product and technical marketing. It's a mouthful. Yes. Vice president of product and technical marketing. But you get a special pass because we really like you, but we get a special pass because you've got deep technical credentials that can back it up, right? Well, so. I, I, thank you for that. I feel I feel like I'm in a, a, a vaunted company here. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, I come to marketing from you know the back door, so to speak. Really, the vast majority of my career has been as an engineer and a product person. Um, I was a software engineer by training. Uh, I spent 10 years at Microsoft working on developer tools of all things. So like first version of Visual C++, IDEs and compilers and debuggers, like you don't get much more in the basement of the engine room. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I not, love not to date you, but I think I can remember the box that that software came in. Yes. When software I, came well, in. the fact that I go back to the days when software came on disks, you know, yeah. I think alone uh, uh, probably dates me. Um but yeah, I and the reason is like I because I was a developer, the only products I know how to relate to are products that developers use. Mm. Right? Because to me it's really important that you be able to 
put yourself in the shoes of your user. And I can't, I, I know how to do that for developers because I was one. And, and as a hobbyist, I still am. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, think we've talked before about programming languages. I go through phases of learning new programming languages. I'm, I'm, uh, rolling up my sleeves on Swift UI for Mac and Ooh. iOS right now of all things. That's a fun um, one. Yeah. So, uh, so the bulk of my career has been spent building developer tools and developer platforms. Um, but the thing I really enjoy is I love, I love that intersection of where products that are used by millions of developers then actually make a real difference for their business. And mm. that, that I think is what always leads me to this intersection of engineering and product and marketing, because um, I think when all that comes together, developers are happy because they get to use cool tools and cool technologies and their businesses are happy because it's something that actually makes a difference. Yeah. So, so I'm in marketing, but to be honest, I, I, I could only do marketing at a company like Confluent where our core audience are developers and architects. Like if you dropped me into marketing at Procter and Gamble, no offense to folks who work at Procter and Gamble, like I would be miserable. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I mean, I, um, I feel that on the developer advocate side, it's like tools that people use is great, but like tools that developers use working in that world, right? The the stuff that you want to use yourself, you get to talk about. It's just, is that making us late communicators? We can only relate to people like us. That makes us ideally suited to the field. (laughs) I, I don't know. I think, I think it's, I think the, to be successful in any of these roles, whether it's developer advocacy, product management, marketing, you you have to start with a real understanding of who your customer is. I was at Adobe for about four years. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember there, we wouldn't have thought of hiring somebody on the Photoshop team if they didn't just own a digital camera because they thought they were cool. <laughs> right? I love yeah. marketers yeah. who have side projects of software development of some kind. Right. Yeah. You have to keep your um, yeah, I got to keep your hands dirty. You know what yeah, I mean? It's got to be the kind of thing. I mean, ideally, you find a job where you would do it for free, but you you get paid to prioritize their check, their to do list. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like I'd be programming no matter what I did. And I'd be talking to developers no matter what I did. But, exactly. But for for Confluent, I will um, focus on this area more than that area. Well, it, it, exactly. And I think, um, uh, so to, to sort of finish off that, I uh, spent 10 years at Microsoft. And the other big chunk of my career was about nine years at Google, uh, sort of yeah. building up Google Cloud Platform. Um, uh, and again, um, same sort of thing. Super technical product used by developers of all stripes. But then the value really is to the business. And when you connect those two, like you really see cool stuff happen. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a because GCP is a big, high-profile project. What made you think here? I am at the perfect intersection of developers and tools they use and businesses that need them. I'm going to jump ship into event streaming. Well, it, it's really funny you mentioned that because um, I hadn't thought about the space a lot. I was aware of Kafka. Um, but we were getting ready to do, uh, at one point, I was working on keynote demos for GCP Next. Right. And I think it was the year we were getting ready to launch TensorFlow, our AI platform. Yeah. And at the same time, we were announcing um, a, a data streaming product called Dataflow. It uses Apache Beam SDK to do both batch and real-time APIs. Hmm. Um, and I hadn't paid much attention before. 
And it occurred to me as we were doing this launch that although AI was going to get all the, 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 the attention, that the value to a company of making the jump from batch data to real time probably was more transformative than AI. You thought at that time? I, well, it, it just, it leapt out to me was we, as I dug into it more, this idea of moving from so many companies were trapped in the era of, well, we get our quarterly retro and, and maybe they have a dashboard, but the data in the dashboard's never up to date. Um, and I realized that there are great uses of AI, but so many companies are trapped in this data at rest um, batch mode of working. And so it occurred to me, I thought at the time, wow, this is really underappreciated. And now I, I, that didn't lead, lead me to immediately go, oh, so I should go, you know, go check out this company called Confluent. But Life really goes that linearly. Even if, yeah. Mine certainly doesn't. <laughs> um, beware anybody who says they have a total plan, I think, for their <laughs> career. Yeah. I think you have to be open to, you know, what comes up. Uh, and then when, you know, some folks uh, uh, at Confluent reached out and I, my boss is Stephanie Buscemi um, and my friends knew her from Salesforce. You know, do you find this tech is a massive industry, yet you still find you're always there's when you get into the developer side of it, it's a small world that we keep circling and running around. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I mean? There are always so many more new people to meet, and yet the, some of the same faces seem to circle around you like fate. Yes, exactly. And I often, I often remind myself of this: when you meet someone at a conference, you don't know if you're going to be working with them in five years' time. So pay attention. Yes. Yeah. Uh, completely. So. Um, so yeah, it occurred to me then that um, that data streaming was underhyped, under. Uh, underappreciated. And so when the opportunity came up to, to join the company that invented all this, it just was like, why wouldn't I? So it was mostly um, a real-time move rather than the many, many other great features. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And I think that's why that's one of the things I think we hope to change, which is um, I think a lot of people immediately think Kafka confluent, they immediately gravitate to the real-time part. And that's certainly valuable, but but when you think about everything streaming data can do, um, I think it's much more than just being being real-time. And I think you and I talked about this when we were uh, at Current. Shameless plug, Current, it's a great event. We're doing it again in 2023. <laughs> I have to live yeah. up to my marketing reputation, right? I got to be selling something here. So <laughs> That's so how we me... met doing the keynote together, right? That's right. Working on that. So let me put a plug for Kafka Summit London in May and Current uh, in August. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, I think one of the things that happens to a lot of, I have this theory that a lot of really radical technologies, they're underappreciated at first because we look at them as through the lens of what we already know, and we so Mm. we 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 underappreciate them Uh, when. Again, I'm old enough to have survived when the PC first rolled out. Um, <laughs> the first uses of PCs, uh, airlines bought millions of them, but they literally used them simply as a dumb mainframe terminal. So they had this machine with its own processing power, its own storage. They ignored all that, and they made a 3270 terminal emulator out of it. They treated it <laughs> like just a different terminal. 
As an aside, if you ever watch your check-in agent at an airline typing a Russian novel on their keyboard, it's pretty clear they're still stuck in the era <laughs> yeah. of terminal emulators. Yeah, they don't let you peer around at the monitor, not for oh, security, I, but because it would look dated. It would be horrifying, yeah. yeah. They put it in a browser now, but they're still just typing terminal commands. Yeah. Anyway, over the course of time, we realized that that having your own local processing and your own local storage let you do amazing things. And out of that comes Lotus 123 and Microsoft Excel and the Mac and Photoshop and all these things. Hmm. We all carry these amazing devices in our pockets. Yeah, you know, Greg is holding up a phone for the people listening on the podcast. Oh, yes. This is, I'm, this is great for radio, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, we all carry these phones in our pockets. And when the iPhone first came out, even Steve Jobs was saying, oh, yeah, it's just you use the web. We just used them as web browsers. And only, yeah. when we, only when we stopped and said, wait, there's local processing and a camera and GPS and accelerometers. There's whole new things we can do here. Um, and I suspect that data streaming is the same way, right? That we're looking at it through a lens of, well, you know, I've already do ETL type stuff. So this is kind of ETL. Uh, so I'll just do ETLE type stuff. But um, faster. But faster. And yeah. I think I think there's I think there's much more potential for data streaming adopted broadly to really have a profound change in the way you think about your data infrastructure. I'll give you an example. If okay. I ask you, Chris, you're at a, uh, uh, you know, a bank or a manufacturer and I ask you to draw your data landscape, chances are you're going to draw a bunch of boxes. And you can say, this box is a SQL server, and this box is HANA, and this you're focused on the boxes. Mm. Um, and then maybe you'll draw some lines connecting them. But fundamentally, your, your mental model is the boxes. But the problem is, the boxes by themselves aren't where the value is. The data sitting in my inventory system, in and of itself, isn't valuable until it shows up on my e-commerce site until my weather data impacts my inventory data, which impacts my ordering data. The value is actually in the lines between the boxes. It's not in the boxes itself. Being able to create the relationship between different systems. The connections, the movement. Yeah. And then once you realize that, you realize, wow, what I should be, I, when I look at my estate, it's not 20 boxes. It's actually... 800 or 8,000 connections between the boxes. And that's when I think the light bulb goes on. You go, whoa, I need to think about how do I manage those connections? How do I, how do I build new connections? How do I take a stream of data that connects my inventory to my e-shopping portal and connect another data stream into it? It, it inverts the way you think about it. And at that point, the value of Kafka and Confluent just comes screaming out at you because it's like, do I want to manage 8,000 strands of spaghetti and yeah. five different ETL tools and eight different systems? Or do I want to have a consistent way to think about all the data that's moving around in my company? Because data that's not moving isn't actually doing anything for you. You're, you're paying money to store it and archive it and back it up. But like, what's it doing? It's It literally has no value until you query it or do something to pull it out and put it into another system. Yeah, and I think- It goes somewhere and triggers the reaction. Exactly. And so that to me is why 
I think data streaming in Kafka um, is uh, Jay, our founder, has talked about it as it's the it's the fourth estate. It's the fourth big piece of your database, data architecture. We're used to about thinking about our databases and our transactional systems. I think, you know, in, a, in I don't know, I'm bad at predicting the, the future. So I'll say N years. I don't know if, I don't know if N, N is years. one, two, or five. I think the, the companies will fundamentally think of their data differently. They will think about it in terms of how the data is moving around. And the places where they're stored are important for sure, but yeah. they're not where the value's created. They're not where um, uh, they're not how you fundamentally think about your data architecture. Yeah, there's a physical analog to this, and it, it, it strikes me as if we could automate the physical analog, we'd be a lot happier. But you have. If you've been in a large bank and you've seen two teams that theoretically could communicate their data to each other, but then you try and wind up the Department A talks to Department B project, and 18 months later, you want to just throw yourself off a cliff. Yeah. Because getting departments to talk to each other in a large organization is hard to impossible sometimes. Well, you know, we and think we about can automate this, that. Yep. And, we think, and we've seen this happen in other parts of the compute world. Think about pre-cloud, the way you provisioned infrastructure was with a ticket. You put a ticket in the ticketing system, then somebody in the infrastructure department finds a spare server, fires it up, you know, you yeah. collaborate via tickets. Um, and what cloud did was you collaborate via APIs. Here's yeah. a programmatic API. You want infrastructure? Call the API. I may quota you, I may throttle you, I may put budgetary constraints, but fundamentally, it's an API-driven process. I think that's the same way with data collaboration. The idea of, oh, oh, let me file a ticket with you. Let me schedule a meeting. Let's figure out how my data relates to your data versus let's have a catalog of all our data streams. Mm. And again, subject to you know, security and visibility and all that, why can't I just see your data schema augment it with my department's data and produce a new data stream that is the combination of your inventory data and my sales data. Why yeah. does that have to be a meeting-driven, ticketing-driven process as opposed to an automated process? So I, I, I completely agree. I think, um, and again, that's back to that, the values in the lines, not the boxes, mm. right? So. This is reminding me of a conversation I had today at lunchtime with my brother-in-law. We spent about 60 seconds talking about the kids, and then we moved on to technology, of course. You have very different in-law conversations <laughs> than I do, my friend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe that relationship is quite particular. But um, we, I, So he is all excited about um, communicating between departments with REST-based microservices. And I have my own answers to that, but I'm going to pick your brains. Why Why do this with this new thing that's an event log rather than just set up REST APIs to everything? Yeah, I think I, I think it's there. there's a couple reasons. One is because we're talking about data, things like schema really matter. Um, we, we have really well-defined ways of expressing data schema. We have really well-defined ways of querying it with things like SQL. And I think, um, I think fighting against SQL is like fighting gravity. Um, 
uh, and there's been lots of attempts to say, you know, we're going to replace SQL with something else. Like, I, I don't know too many 1960s, 70s technologies that are still, you know, largely around in the same way. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think, I think, sure, you could, you can put REST APIs and write custom code on all this stuff, but why not go directly to the source? Why not go directly to the fact that this is a data representation? Uh, I'm just not certain what putting an, uh, a REST layer on top of it adds on top of the core data itself. I'm, I'm curious about your, what was your response? Well, I'm going to pick up on what you said just quickly, because one of the things, one of the things that SQL-based interfaces, um, one of the things that has always been a problem with giving someone access to the SQL is it's very hard to lock down um, mutation. And you can do that with role-based access control, sure. But because most SQL engines are expecting updates to happen, you're often limited technologically to how many SQL connections you can have. Like um, I remember when I was using Oracle, it was like 120, 200 connections was your absolute maximum because not all of them are going to write, but all of them have to be prepared to be able to write. And that mutation mismatch means we can't open up SQL to the rest of the department. And so we put a facade in front of it. And I think it's an interesting thing that Kafka because it doesn't have updates, it kind of does away with that problem. Everything's a read until you need yeah. something else. Yep. So you can open up your data to other people. Yeah. I, that's a great, uh, uh, I think that's a great point. And I think that's one of the other, I, 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 I'm curious how you've seen this. I think companies and people go through um, stages of adoption of Kafka. And the first one is um, sort of the dumb pipe stage. Right. You know, I, I take the data out. I do some simple renaming, rekeying. I drop some fields of the schema and I just pipe it to the other end. Yeah. Uh, I don't store it. I don't process it except sort of minimally like cleaning it up along the yeah. way. We could have used any Q technology, but we went with this one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Kafka's got lots of advantages even in that scenario. But again, back to the point of if you just think about it as a simple ETL layer, You'll get some value, but then when you start to realize, oh wait, um, I can I can store the data. It's a log. I can actually store that data in the stream. I can query the data in the stream. I can combine streams together. Like that's where I think you start to open up more interesting possibilities. Um, and I think folks go through this phase. The first phase is it's just a dump pipe, um, mm -hmm. and then the second is, boy, I got a lot of pipes. Um, like maybe I, maybe I can be smarter about discovering and reusing existing pipes. Um, yeah. maybe I can, uh, I can mix and match data and create new data as a product, right? When you get, when you start thinking about a stream is a product I produce as opposed to just plumbing that connects system A to system B. Um, I think that's when, um, that's when companies start to really see a lot more that sort of second order value. And again, this is human nature. What's the first phase we all did with EC2? We did a lift and shift. We took, yeah. back to my analogy of the smartphone and the terminal, cloud went through the same thing. The first phase of cloud adoption was literally taking a VM and putting it in the cloud. You saw, I, there were stickers on backs of laptops. The cloud is just somebody, a computer in somebody else's data center, yeah. right? Yeah. 
But then what happens is we realize that's actually a far too limited way of thinking about it. If you think about the cloud, not as uh, a collection of computers, but as one big computer, then you start to see the development of things like Kubernetes and containers. Um, a lot of the services we take for granted, whether that's Amazon S3 or Google's uh, um, uh, cloud storage, those wouldn't be possible to build in an environment where you thought of each server as an individual VM. It took a mental shift. Yeah. And I think, so the fact that a lot of Kafka usage today is pretty simple pipes is uh, normal. But then you see as once customers, once people really start to see the possibilities, then um, then then a lot more um, possibilities open up. Yeah. Yeah, the way I see that is like we didn't really shift in our use of things like AWS until we stopped seeing it as individual machines, as you say, and started to right. see it as like a faucet, a tap. Exactly. Just a utility you can turn on or off as much as you like. And, and apply that to data stream. When you stop thinking about it as just a pipeline from A to B and instead as a data product in and of itself, then you start to think about, oh, how do I, how do I get more value out of each data pipeline I'm using? Mm. Right? Again, because yeah. that's where the value is. Yeah. And also you get this thing where um, once you realize you can create as many lines between the boxes as you like quite easily you also hit this realization that actually the outbound line, you only have to write once. And then lots of people can consume from that same yeah. produced line of data. Yeah. And uh, what I'm seeing that's really interesting is I'm starting to see companies say, hey, I'm using Kafka internally. You're using Kafka internally. We need to collaborate between the companies. Why... Why are we thinking about building some other system to do the company-to-company -company connection? Why can't we use Kafka for that? Why can't my internal data stream output be the input to you, even though we're in different organizations? Now, there's it raises lots of issues, you know, not the least of which, of course, is security and data governance yeah. and all that. Um, but we're literally seeing companies start to say, why are we going through this uh, expensive translation layer between my internal Kafka system and your internal Kafka system. Yeah. Yeah. You're actually seeing that in the field. Yes. We're seeing, we're seeing companies, uh, you know, and they're, they're asking us, how do we do this? Like what's, what's the best practices for this? Can you, can you help us with this? And right now, I mean, I'll be honest, it's an advanced, it's an advanced use case for sure. Mm. Um, but I think it's, it's an interesting next step that once you've adopted Kafka internally and you've made streaming data the, the foundation of how you think about data movement in your company, it's only sort of natural to say, well, but what about my close partners, right? Like I, back to our, our example, I've got an inventory management system. My supply chain has a system to track the, the creation and shipping of products. Why, why are these two things that we update each other via email or why do I have to write a custom rest API that just sits in front of a Kafka topic when you're doing the yeah. same thing on your side. Um, now it's, as I said, it's, it's an advanced use case because it raises lots of issues around governance and data security and data policy and PII. And yeah, yeah. there's lots of things that make it not as easy as it could be or should be. But I think you're going to see that as 
one of the next big um, one of the next big frontiers as companies uh, more and more adopt Kafka internally. I could believe that actually, because one thing I think is like when you when you move a company to microservices based systems, you quickly realize that you almost have to treat other departments as external in that you need to validate them the same way you'd validate a user's input. You need to provide like uptime guarantees in the way that you provide them to your customers. But then once you're treating your own internal departments as semi-external, you start to think, well, why am I treating my my completely external departments as not semi-internal? And those, the boundary is kind of, there's a middle boundary between the two, right? Yeah, no, I think that's a great uh, that's a great analogy because again, the whole point here of these uh, loosely coupled organizational models is to allow sharing and collaboration, but also allow independent evolution, independent mm. development. Um, and you're right; you make a great point about um, if we're collaborating via an API, then all of a sudden. Uh, I got to worry about accidentally being DDoSed by my internal departments, right? Yeah. Uh, it happens. Yeah, um, it, happens. Uh, you know, it almost never happens deliberately, and it often happens accidentally. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh. And suddenly you realize, oh, I kind of need API throttling internally as well. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to get taken down by an errant fat finger mistake from my colleague. Yeah. Um, and you're right. Once you, I hadn't thought about it that way, but once you treat internal teams as semi-external, then why don't you treat external teams as semi-external? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's a lot of frontier that has to be solved here, you know, relating to, well, the things just we're talking about, how do I prevent a partner from flooding me with topics faster than I'm prepared to accept? Or um, how do I make sure that I'm not, uh, you know, secure, security and governance just immediately? comes to mind yeah. right yeah but those are kind of external constraints mm-hmm. they're like making a difference between the the constraints we have to do as a business and the constraints we're stuck with because of technology and if mm-hmm. we could we should at least as technologists be able to solve the technology problems right exactly exactly yeah so all those are reasons i think why um i i think kafka and data streaming is just at a super interesting place right now i think uh, it's it's humbling to see the Kafka community. I I like you. I love developer events. Like I Kafka Summit is and current are like the highlight of my year. I love those sorts of things. And the it's this gets back to I think what drew me to developer platforms in the first place, which is it's amazing to watch what people build that you never in a million years envisioned was possible. Yeah. Right. I, I think our customers in some ways are way, not in some ways, in most ways are <laughs> way more creative than I am. Um, and I love, I love that one week you might be talking to a financial startup. The next week you're talking to Michelin, like huge conglomerate, uh, in Europe. The next week it's BMW. The next week it's, uh, you know, a, a tech company. Yeah. And that's what makes, I think something like data streaming so fun is we talk in the marketing side, which is the great news is Kafka has infinite use cases. The challenge is Kafka has infinite use cases, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So like, 
Lord knows our industry can suffer sometimes from solutions looking for problems. Yeah, but but we're not in one of those. No, um, no. Just... Uh, and so, yeah, I love I love seeing what developers build that we never thought was even possible. Yeah, one of my favorites, uh, if I can interject this, was um, there's a online grocery store in Europe called Picnic. And uh, they, they're heavy users of Kafka, and I got to go to their robotic factory last year. Ooh. And they have, like, topics with events streaming through constantly, millions of events during the day. Meanwhile, they have groceries streaming through conveyor belts, millions of those. And there's, like, just this wonderful physical analog to what we're doing in data. That's, That's amazing. Yeah. It was like being inside a Kafka server seeing my factory with everything going around it's like i'd never have imagined this and i'd never have imagined how cool logistics could be how, how nerdy is it chris that you and i are laughing at the idea of climbing inside a kafka server i mean i i'm i'm very happy if uh, if any listeners are feeling the same way then you're in a you know a warm and welcome club absolutely so um uh, where do you, i would like to know and you, uh, you should have answers to this. It's part of your job to have answers to this. How do we get there a little faster? What's missing? What do we need? Yeah, um, that's great. That's a great question. So I'm going to answer it two ways. Um, I think what is what is the technology sort of need? And then what's the market kind of need? And they're, they're related. I think technology-wise, look, Kafka has proven itself incredibly uh, – many, many times over again. Um, I think about stream processing, the idea of doing the processing of data in flight, the transformation, the analysis, I think is still um, still a little too difficult. It's one of the reasons I'm really excited about, um, about uh, our acquisition of a company called Imaroc and some really talented Flink folks, because I think... Yes taking Flink and bringing it even closer to the Confluent cloud product, um, I think that's going to open up a lot of possibilities to make make moving beyond dumb pipes even easier and even more powerful. So, so technically, I think that's one area we can make. We should really make stream processing even easier for more and more developers. You shouldn't have to be a 10-year Kafka expert. Uh, I got to do the math. Did I just jump farther back than Kafka exists? No, I think I'm okay. Uh, very close to it. I think it's very close. Only, you can only hire Jay for this role. Now. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very small market. Yeah. Um, uh, I, the second one is, and again, we hear this from large enterprise customers. It comes back to governance. If if you're, you know, great. I've pitched that. Stop thinking about the boxes. Start thinking about the lines. Hmm. Then anybody with data that matters to their business is going to say, great, how do I govern that? Like you, yeah. like, how do I make this not be a plate full of spaghetti, but something that I can actually reason about and think about and control and manage and scale and version and all those sorts of things. So yeah. on the confluence um, side. You see that at the business level, but you see at the developer level as well, when we're saying, how do we monitor this? How do we observe it? How do we? Exactly. Sort yeah. of we, we've, We've taken away sort of the first order pain, I think, of Kafka with Confluent Cloud, where we've really re-architected it from the ground up to be a cloud-native surface, to use cloud-native primitives, to make it easier to automate and scale. But I think 
um, I think we're putting a lot of focus and emphasis around governance and governance tools. Because again, if you're going to, if you, if you're going to buy that the lines are where the value is, then you got to give me somebody to reason about, about all the lines in my organization. Yeah. Um, and then I guess on the, the market side, um, we need to make Kafka, this relates to the first point, um, more approachable, easier to get started for more and more developers. Um, like the Kafka community is great. I want it to be two, three, four times, five times as big, 10 times as big as yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, but we're going to need to make it more approachable, easier to use because I, uh, the, the opportunities are out there for folks with Kafka expertise. If you do the job searches, a lot of companies are out there looking for, for, for Kafka talent and we need to help continue to grow that. Um, you know, to get new developers interested in Kafka and what it can do to, to show them the possibilities, to make it easier for more and more developers to, to yeah. get started with. So on the technology side, I think uh, stream processing and stream governance are sort of two areas that are really ripe for us to, to, um, to invest in. And we are as a company confluent, putting my confluent hat on and then putting my, community broader hat on, I think we just got to continue to help grow and nurture the the Kafka community. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I think one of the big things that holds it back is it is such a different way of thinking. Uh, you know, going from object orientation with a relational database at the back end to a streaming API. It's like yeah. web WebSockets should have taken off more than it did, but we're kind of used to request response HGTP. Yep. And there's a similar uh, and, thing there. And we have decades of experience with data at rest, right? Mm. Like we, they're very mature, mature systems. Um, and to say suddenly that data in motion is uh, the, is as a peer of data in rest, or in some ways, as I tried to make the case, it's, it's even more valuable than data at rest. Um, that's a, that's a big mental shift. Yeah. We have to. We have to do a good job of explaining it in a way that people can get comfortable with it. Yep, yep, and uh, and again, make it easy. One of the things I learned uh, from twenty years of working on developer tools is the more you can uh, clear away the repetitive crap for developers, um, the more you unlock their potential. And whether that's IDEs and code editors and debuggers, um, and I think. That's what we're trying to do with with Kafka and with Confluent Cloud. Like, clear away all the stuff about how do I install and how do I provision and how do I scale and how do I manage Zookeeper and put all that behind a simple cloud service. It lets the developer do the fun bits. I know of no developer who gets up every day and says, "Oh boy, I get to reshard a database," or "I get to." <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah, just yeah. not that's not the fun part. Yeah. Uh, what gets me excited is helping developers get to the fun part of their job. Um, yeah. And the more we can take away the undifferentiated part, um, the better. You know, a friend of mine had a really pithy way of putting this. He said, uh, if you can make something twice as easy to use, people will find it 10 times more useful. Yeah. And that'd be a nice Absolutely. place to get to. Yeah. So are you going to come to wrap up? Are we expecting a big keynote announcement from you in current that you can give away right now? Uh, you, can you expect announcements? Yes. Can I give them away to you now? No, I like my job. Oh, <laughs> oh well, in that case, I'll have to see you at current in uh, August 23. And Kafka Summit London, 
Yes, that's coming in May. May. So yes. uh, I'll, we'll be we'll be there. Looking forward to talking to all the the European um, Kafka community, uh, and then current in August, we'll be back in in the US. So in Austin, Texas. Yeah, yeah. that'll be fun. I'll see you there. Thanks very much, yeah. Greg. Thanks, Chris. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Greg. And I will pick up on Greg's shameless plug from the start of that conversation, if I may. We are organising two event streaming conferences this year. There's Kafka Summit London in May, and that will cover all things Apache Kafka. And then there's Current in Austin, Texas in August, and that's all things Apache Kafka, plus all things relevant to the real-time data streaming world in general. Much like this podcast aims to be, Kafka at the core, but it's a big old world out there. I'll be at both, and I hope to see a lot of you there and meet you in person. In the meantime, probably the best source of Kafka information I can point you to is Confluent Developer, which is our library of knowledge about writing, architecting, and maintaining Kafka applications. If you want an article, a tutorial, a guide, or some documentation, check it out at developer.confluent.io. And I promise you, you'll learn something new. But until next week, it just remains for me to thank Greg DiMichelli for joining us and you for listening. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins, and I'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.